Lord God, we know that your word is eternal and life-giving. And so, Father, as we hear it with our ears and see it on the page with our eyes this morning, uh, would you please work in us and transform us from the inside out? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. A reading from Galatians 5, 13 to 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Well, it's a good idea to keep the text open in front of you so that you can, uh, I guess, check the things that I'm saying, see, um, see what God has to say to you personally. And also there is a, uh, a leaflet uh, that you've received and on the left-hand inside cover of that, a very brief outline. Let me pray again. Our Lord, we need your help uh, with this. We need your spirit. Uh, we need your reminder, your rebuke. Um, we, we really want you to bear fruit, good fruit, in our lives. And so please do that today and going forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what sort of fruit do you think it was that Eve ate in the Garden of Eden? Don't tell me it was an apple. Because there's nothing in the text in Genesis 2 or 3 that tells us, although there's plenty of medieval artwork. You may have uh, seen Adam and Eve sitting there with their apples. So we don't actually know, uh, but what sort of fruit springs to mind for you when you imagine the forbidden fruit? The beautiful specimen uh, here that Duncan has brought us. Are you thinking something bitter and not quite ripe or, you know, maybe overripe? Or like a big, nasty grapefruit. Now, I hope there aren't grapefruit lovers here. We used to have a grapefruit tree in our... Oh, we've got some. Oh, dear. You are going to be upset today, folks. Um, we used to have a grapefruit tree in our house, and mercifully, it only bore fruit every second year. But in those years when it did bear fruit, you know, you'd have to layer on the sugar. 
Or are you thinking perhaps something more like a perfectly ripe, juicy, delicious mango that no one can resist because it's just so good? So are you thinking sour or sweet? What about the fruit of the Spirit? Is that tasty fruit? Or is that the sort of fruit that you know is good for you, but you really don't like it? Well, today we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and I want to ask you if you desire this fruit in your heart. Because the fruit in Genesis 3 brought corruption and destruction to the human race. But the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5 is the fruit of heaven. The fruit that will characterize our eternal life. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, our lens into the very heart of God. His own character traits that he is sharing with us. Now, two weeks ago, uh, Duncan looked at the topic of freedom, and that theme of freedom continues into today's passage, which focuses on the implications of this freedom for the Christian life. You see, if by now in the series on Galatians you haven't started to wonder about this question of holy and righteous living and how that fits in with grace, then maybe you haven't actually realised just how shocking grace is. Because grace says it's sinners who are justified, not the good people. Because our justification, our approval by God only happens through our faith, not by our good works. And so then does it matter how you live? How important is it to choose holiness and righteousness if it's by grace that we're saved? So three points today. Firstly, freedom and the life of the spirit, then the acts of the flesh, and then the fruit of the spirit. Firstly, freedom and the life of the Spirit, looking at the verses 13 through to 18. Paul opens with these words about freedom. You, brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So what's being contrasted in this little verse? Freedom and Indulging the flesh. They are incompatible. Christian freedom is not a license to sin. Rather, it is an enabler of a new purpose for our lives. And that purpose is we serve one another humbly in love. So Christian freedom operates at two levels. What we're, there's, there's what we are freed from. Freed from indulging in the flesh. We don't go back to that. It's dangerous. And then it's what we're freed for, which is serving one another and ultimately becoming more like God. Have you seen the movie Schindler's List? Great movie, isn't it? Schindler provided work in a munitions factory for 1,100 Jews during the Second World War, sparing them from the gas chambers. The alternative for them would have been likely death, but Schindler freed them from that. It would have been therefore madness for them to, you know, for those workers to quit their jobs and jump on the train to Auschwitz. But their work had purpose. And so their freedom operated on a second level. They were building bombs and bullets for the German military. 
However, Schindler was determined that none of the shells manufactured in his factory would ever explode. Okay, so what's the point of a munitions factory that can't produce a working bomb? Well, it depends how you look at it, doesn't it? What might appear as actually pointless in some people's eyes is actually life-saving. There was a purpose to their work, and that was subverting the Nazis' military agenda. So our new purpose is each other. It's, verse 15, not biting and devouring each other. It's, verse 26, not provoking and envying each other. It's loving each other, verse 13, serving one another humbly in love. That's the good we do. Love is what God is, and it's what he is making us to be also. Our freedom is to love, not because we're trying to get anything out of each other. That wouldn't be love. That would be selfishness. We love out of freedom. We have nothing to prove to God and everything to give. That's how it works. And yet, Paul wouldn't have written these paragraphs if there wasn't some risk that we might fail. And so these paragraphs are full of strong exhortation to us. For example, verse 16 and following, Paul says, walk by the Spirit and then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. And so we're getting to the nub of the issue here. God himself is at work in us through his spirit, transforming us, subduing that flesh. But how? Does he attach puppet strings to us? Does he transplant your brain with a device that's pre-programmed not to sin? Does he take away the flesh altogether so that you are now only in the spirit? Well, that last one, that, that actually is exactly what he will do one day. We will receive new, incorruptible bodies and minds shaped perfectly by God's Spirit. We will be so familiar with the knowledge of God that it will no longer even occur to us to sin against him. But for now, we live life in these two contexts, the context of the Spirit and the flesh. We are, we are in the Spirit... And yet we're also, if you hadn't noticed, still in the flesh. This struggle between the spirit and the flesh is what the Christian life is all about. He hasn't taken away the old yet. But he wants you to walk away from its effects on you. To treat the, the, the flesh, as he says in verse 24, to treat the flesh as if it has already been crucified with Christ on the cross. He will help you. But he will do it through your choices, through your decisions. He'll do it through your words and your thoughts and your actions. And he'll shape all of those things. He'll mold them together. But he'll do this by calling you to obedience. And that's what you have in, in the text of the Bible. And as you step out in faith and trust in him and you walk by the Spirit, then as you do that, you'll find that he is doing his transforming work in you that he always intended to do. It's interesting how our two wills 
work at the same time in all of this. So point two, then, the acts of the flesh. This is verses 19 to 21. When the serpent tempted Eve in the garden, the fruit looked good. But it turned out to be bitter. The whole experience was eye-opening for them. They could see more of the world, but they could also see their own shame. That pristine relationship of mutual trust between them and God was broken. And brothers and sisters, we, we have to see sin in this light. See it as the breaking of that relationship. Sin is good things corrupted. Sin is gifts snatched. Sin is not about being naughty. It's about rejecting God as the one to guide us in how to live. Before the snatching, we didn't need to know everything. We were safe. But after the snatching, all manner of corruption unfolds. Our bodies are defiled. Our spiritual relationships are now open to dark forces. And our interpersonal relationships are poisoned. I'm going to reread verses 19 to 21. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what do you make of the list? This week, uh, the plumber came to my house again. Uh, some of you know that we've been renovating um, the ensuite. Well, we're now on to our second bathroom. And he's come to prepare the pipes for the second bathroom. And uh, he, he called me in after he'd finished and he said, see that? That's asbestos. <sighs> You're going to have to spray that down and cement over it. And in case any of it's fallen on the floor, spray, spray that too, bag it up, dispose of it. Asbestos is not your friend. So I did what he said. You're dealing with something vile. Airborne fibres that kill people. Not straight away, but all in good time. You've got to get rid of it. You can't be complacent. And even more dangerous than asbestos are the acts of the flesh. They don't just kill, they prevent you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Now Paul has categorised his list of vices into four areas and they all begin with the letter S as you'll see. The first is intimacy, spiritual, social and to do with substance abuse. Let's think about each of them briefly. Firstly, intimacy sin. I'm going to use the word intimacy here as a euphemism. I'm sure you've noticed given the wide range of ages with us today. That first word, intimacy immorality, in some way, that's a catch-all for all intimacy sin. It refers to any kind of intimate activity outside of marriage. But then the other two intimacy words, uh, beginning with the Greek letter alpha, and that's just like in English where we put the, the prefix un before a word. 
So unable means not able. So the second of these words is unclean or unnatural, if you like. And the third word is unrestrained or uncontrolled. So as we're thinking about intimacy in relation to the flesh, the flesh kind of intimacy, it's unmarried, it's unnatural, or it's uncontrolled. Now, we, we live in a society that worships that kind of intimacy, totally worships it. This is kind of how you get fulfilled in life. And we don't have to go looking for images that kind of depict this, this picture. Uh, they find you. And the age of first encounters is getting younger and younger. You know, if you see enough suggestive images, your attitude to intimacy will shift. You'll, you'll have a new normal. You'll start to see unmarried, unnatural, uncontrolled intimacy as normal intimacy. And for many of us, of course, this normalization has actually well and truly begun already. We've, we've started to think just sometimes in the back of our mind, sometimes even in conversation, we've started to think that, that the thing that's abnormal is biblical intimacy because it's kind of restrictive and we find ourselves empathising with people who, who don't agree with us. I can understand why, why you think that. We think, yes, yes, people are acting sinfully, but, but they're also pretty normal. And when it all boils down, it's basically harmless. You've shifted. But is it too late if your normal has already shifted? Well, not if we're still listening. Because Paul says, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, as we see, is to be our antidote. It's our code of living. Eat the good fruit and it will reorient your desires. Remember, sin is like asbestos. Get rid of it carefully. And thoroughly. The second of the S's is actually does start with S, and that is spiritual sin. Paul lists two acts of the flesh that relate to the realm of the spirits. First, idolatry. That's the worship of anything that is not the triune God of the Bible. Historically, this meant bowing down to or revering statues, statues or other objects, uh, thinking they represent some divinity or spiritual force. Of course, it's still common. Uh, in many parts of the world today as well. I went to Myanmar two years ago with a colleague and we visited the Shwedagon. Has anyone been to the Shwedagon? Ah, yes, we have one. It's a massive golden pagoda, uh, it's about 100 metres tall, coated with $4 billion of gold. That's a lot. Uh, and that is at the heart of Burmese religious observance. We thought, well, you know, we're Bible-believing Christians. It's just a building. We don't believe in Buddhism. No harm visiting. I'm glad I went, but I probably won't visit again. Because even though I was just an observer, after half an hour or so, maybe it was an hour, of looking at hundreds of statues of Buddha and watching people bowing and listening to them chanting, I just had this sensation of incredible heaviness on my shoulders and on my head, it was like a darkness over me. They were feelings I can't really explain. 
Of course, the New Testament tells us that greed is like idolatry. We can treat money as God, and perhaps we're inoculated against it. Perhaps we don't have that sense of foreboding about money. The second of the spiritual sins he lists is witchcraft or sorcery or magic. Beware. Don't go near seances or anything satanic. Don't consult mediums. Don't do tarot readings. Ask yourself, does this fit with the saving gospel of Christ? Are you inviting a spiritual presence into your life that could drag you away from the life-giving grace of God? Now, I'm not saying be afraid of these things. You don't need to be afraid of them. But the instruction of the scripture is to have nothing to do with them. Trust in Jesus. He's the life giver. He's the one who has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And he is the one who gives you new life and a future. Trust in him. Well, the third category of these acts of the flesh is social or relational sin. And uh, Paul highlights eight of these. And so maybe this is big. And in this list of eight social sins, some of them are attitudes and some of them are actions. Hatred, jealousy, selfish ambition, and envy. They are the sort of attitudes that dissolve relationships, sometimes slowly, sometimes suddenly. Now you look at hatred and you think, oh, well, that's, that's obviously sinful. But you feel you don't hate anybody. I don't know. Do you, do you ever feel contempt, though? I mean, counsellors often identify contempt in relationships, just in the way in which we, we sort of have this kind of attitude towards the other person. And, um, and it's very common, actually. You wouldn't call it hatred. But um, it can lead to a relationship crisis. If you feel contempt towards someone, you know, it might be for very good reason. They might have treated you very poorly, but you need to talk to someone about it because relationships are at stake when there is contempt. Selfish ambition, that puts your own ends, your own benefits, always at the top of your mental lists. But as I was thinking about this, I thought, actually, I often don't even bother putting selfish ambition on the top of my list. It's just, it's so wired into me it doesn't even need a list. I just think about that first. And when I'm thinking about the list of other things to do, I'm always doing this one anyway. We'll always act in our own self-interest. And in relationships, that causes havoc. You know, either you fight or one party rolls over every time. And, you know, you get into patterns here where selfish ambition is at work and it's, it's just destructive. Jealousy and envy, well, they're about wanting what someone else has got, again, for your own benefit. And the other person is of lesser value to us than the thing they possess or the status that they fill. And then there are the destructive actions that flow from these attitudes. Discord and dissensions where communication has broken down. Selfish ambitions clashed against each other. You tried compromise, but... Well, you've just resigned yourself to the fact that you disagree. 
It's just too hard. Factions where disagreements have ultimately kind of triumphed over love and we dig into our positions and, you know, that's just where we are now. And sometimes you just, just don't go there because it's just, it's just too hard. And then what about fits of rage? Well, not in public usually because we don't do this sort of thing in public. But often in the privacy of our own homes... It's hard never to get angry, isn't it? But things can get out of control. These relational social sins are so easy to be caught into. But brothers and sisters, cast them out. And fourthly and finally in this point, substance abuse sin. And there's two of these, drunkenness and orgies. This is probably alcohol-fueled orgies that Paul has in mind. In our day... Uh, of course, intoxicating substances take all kinds of forms that, wouldn't have, that they wouldn't have taken in Paul's day, including illicit drugs, mood-altering chemicals, the works. The Bible doesn't appear to be against the consumption of wine, beer, or spirits, but it is against excessive intoxication, the sort of intoxication that takes away self-control, that heightens risk, that opens you up to all sorts of sins. I've known Christians to cut out alcohol completely. I'm sure there are some of you who've cut out alcohol completely because of the sort of behaviour it produces and, you know, you've wanted to flee away from that. Not even allow the possibility of falling into excess. And obviously that's the surest way because there's nothing better than a drink to make you want another drink. I've known others who have cut out alcohol completely after realising the hold that it already has on them. It's not unusual for a seasoned alcoholic to crash after a very small amount of drink. And so there comes a point where there's no winding back your drinking, you just have to eliminate it. Well, I don't know what the strategy is for you, but you've just got to watch out. You've got to beware and be vigilant about this. So uh, I reckon, you know, this is 2,000 years old, but I reckon this, this list is still pretty relevant, isn't it? Perhaps for you, you feel like transformation in your life has been slow. Well, remember, this is a fight. It's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit, but you mustn't stop struggling. In the, uh, the bathroom that I have been renovating, the first one, uh, I varnished a bench top and I uh, put it in place and realised it was the wrong colour. And uh, it was too orangey. We wanted something a little bit more like clear timber. So I grabbed the electric sander and started sanding it back and initially it just looked terrible. You know, the, the gloss, the, the, the sort of the, sub, the stuff on the top, the varnish, it was just all scratched up. The colour hadn't changed at all. I'm just thinking this is awful. And I'm throwing out sandpaper all over the place, all clogged up with this disgusting orangey varnish. I hope you don't like orange varnish. I mean, I hope you, yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, it, it took hours, but after a while, I could see the true colour coming through of the, of the timber. And then later, there were, it, it was the other way around. There were just hints of the old colour stuck in the wood grains. And you just keep going. And finally, 
it's ready for the clear varnish that would, be, that would highlight the intended colour. So it's a bit like that, our lives, the old and the new. But here's where the analogy falls down. With the bench top, I had to wait until the old scum was completely gone before I could put the new varnish on, the clear coat. But with the struggle between flesh and the spirit, you don't wait around for the flesh to disappear before you apply the desired treatment. In fact, it's by applying the desired treatment that the old muck is removed. As Paul says in verse 16, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. They're soothing words. When you follow his cues, the Holy Spirit's cues, you find that he is working through you, through your decisions, through the sacrifices that you make, the things that you find painful but you know they're the right thing to do, through your devotion, uh, and he is transforming you. And so it's like a partnership. It's like a dance, actually, between you and the Holy Spirit. A dance that the Spirit is leading. And you kind of have to follow his steps. As he steps this way, you step with him. As he steps back that way, you step with him. And it won't work unless you participate. It's just you just standing here and the, the Spirit doing his thing. And that's not working. But if you, unless you participate. But all the while, if you do participate, he is creating something beautiful with you and through you. Okay, so finally, point three. The, the climax, really, of the passage. The fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever wondered what it will be like to be in heaven? I see some nods. How will people be different when they are living in the presence of God? After the destruction of the flesh and the giving of new resurrection bodies? Well, it's going to be like this. Love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, as I read that list, I do hope you're not disappointed. Because when you encounter the fruit of of the spirit in someone, you're encountering God's character in them. We're not perfected yet, but this is the work he is doing. Bearing fruit in us that grows from his own holy presence within us. God's character in you. If you're a sapling of a growing God tree, then you should expect more and more over time, to bear God fruit. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. These nine words are powerful beyond comparison in this world. They are life-changing. They are relationship-changing. They are world-changing virtues. Adopt these with all your heart and your life will be vastly different from others and vastly different, hopefully, from what it used to be. 
But here's a, just, a, just a little reminder. If you are feeling that maybe you're a little bit less spirit fruity now than you used to be, then watch out because you're going in the wrong direction. Okay. So what can we say about these nine examples of spirit fruit? We shouldn't be surprised that it all starts with love. Elsewhere in the Bible it says God is love. God is love. That's because God is triune. You think, oh, the Trinity is a complex doctrine, isn't it? Yeah, but the Father loves the Son and, and the Son loves the Spirit and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit and so on. And they always have and they always will. Love is what makes the Trinity the Trinity. I mean, I, I don't know if that's a slight overreach, but it's not like they just put up with each other in eternity. They certainly don't fight. No, they are somehow, mysteriously, I don't know when I say that I really mean it, we don't know how, but somehow eternally intertwined with each other in some way that they are like so wonderfully intertwined that they are in fact one God, not three. There is a level of oneness and love in God that is simply beyond our ability to comprehend. But when it says God is love, he really wants you to believe that. There, this, this is the, a defining, perhaps the defining characteristic of God. But what we, all, what we do know, what we, what we know for sure, is that he has shot some of that love earthward. And it's that love that he is drawing us into. And so as each of us is caught up into this eternal God love, we are intertwined not only with God but also with each other. And we will become increasingly intertwined with each other the closer we get to God. So can you see the problems of factions and dissensions and hatred and fits of rage amongst Christians? They don't fit this God love. There's just no room for it. We are tight. But when we love each other, various other virtues flow out of that. In particular, love brings joy, which is the second one. When you love someone, this is a positive, joyful reality. Joy is meant to define our fellowship. We're not supposed to go around all morose. You remember from John 17, we did a series on this earlier. John was praying, sorry, Jesus was praying to the Father in the presence of the disciples the night before he died. Verse 13, Jesus says to the Father, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. There is joy in God too. And God the Son amongst us here on earth, wanted to share that joy with his followers. And being together and loving one another will lift our spirits. I know many of you are enduring hardship. We can endure hardship joyfully because of our connection to God. 
This will be our eternal joy as well as it is eternal love. So sometimes I need a, a bit of a nudge, to be honest, uh, to remember that my life as a Christian is joyful. Do you, are you the same? Do you, do you need that nudge sometimes? Our flesh is the source of our sadness. Don't forget that. The flesh. You can't find happiness by running away from the source of joy, can you? If we're believers, you know, most of us aren't trying to run away from the source of joy, but we still find ourselves focusing more on the difficulties around us than on the joy that is before us, above us, um, in God. But Paul says elsewhere, set your minds on things above where Christ is. Now, we can't go through all nine at this slow speed, but I do just want to pause on peace as well. In a world full of anxiety and broken relationships, what we need is peace. Don't you think? The, the, the shalom of God is this all-encompassing peace that represents both the healing of re broken relationships, not only relationships with one another, but also relationship with God, as well as a kind of subjective, personal sense of peace. Peace that stops you from freaking out. Because what can possibly unsettle you if you are being drawn into the eternal joy and love of the triune God? We need to remember the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Which guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Remind each other of it. Remind yourself of it. Pray for it. And then just, for goodness sake, take hold of it. Peace is our gift from God. So say to him, Lord, I receive your peace. I live now in your peace. Well, the other six are equally wonderful virtues, each pointing us to God and how he relates to us. Because of his forbearance or patience with us, we are patient with each other adapting to and allowing for each other's flaws. And we wait on his perfect timing for the things that we desire. Because of God's kindness to us, we highly value kindness in ourselves and in our children and in our fellowship. Because of God's goodness, we too are generous Generous with time and with money and with talents and whatever it is you've got. We give of ourselves, whether in practical ways or in our prayers for each other. Because of God's faithfulness, we don't break faith with each other. When relationships are under pressure... We know the enemy is trying to create rifts between us. We know this. And we choose to remain faithful, even when we feel like reverting to envy or contempt. Because of God's gentleness with us, we who are rebellious and yet helpless without him, because of that we are gentle with each other. We're not soft or malleable by others, 
That's not what it means. No, there's an inner strength like that tree in Psalm 1, the tree trunk planted firmly, dependent on God's word, and yet our branches and our leaves are flexible and, um, and are adaptable to our environment, and so we gently blow in the breeze to care for those around us. And finally, because of God's self-control, well, first of all, we're not destroyed because of his self-control. He's held back his wrath against generations worth of human sin and he's given us salvation and hope through his grace. It was while we were still God's enemies that God, enemies of God that Christ died for us. And so because of God's self-control, we will exercise the same self-control over our own wrath doesn't mean we won't rebuke people if they've sinned against us or against someone else that we can see. We will rebuke out of love, out of a desire to see the person repent or be restored rather than a desire to establish ourselves or our own factions. Well, let's bring it all to a conclusion. There's much more we could say about each of these. We could do a whole sermon series on this. One thing I used to do in past home groups was to arch, ask one person each week to tell the story of their life in Christ. And we, we had a roster so people could prepare in advance, but I asked people when they were delivering their testimony in the small group to include one of these fruits of the Spirit that they were particularly praying for in themselves. Something that we could join them in praying for. And so some of, the, some of the single people would say patience. And some of the married people would say kindness or love. Angry people might say self-control. Depressed people might say joy. What is it for you? If I asked you to present to your home group, what, what's the one that you commit to praying for, to starting with? What are you going to ask the members of your group to pray for? Or if you're not in a group yet, how are you going to get in a group who can pray for your growth in the fruit of the Spirit? I started by asking which fruit seemed, seems the most tasty to you, the forbidden fruit or the fruit of the Spirit? Whatever it looked like to Eve, the forbidden fruit was foul with an eternally bitter aftertaste. But the fruit of the Spirit is delicious. And it grows on the tree of life. And through our Saviour Jesus Christ, you are able to eat this fruit. So, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me close in prayer. Our Lord God, you expose us um, by showing the, the effects of sin, by showing the flesh, and, and we, we, we even perceive in ourselves these desires that are wrong. And our Father, we ask that you would please uh, work in us, keep working in us. Please keep on showing us uh, where our hearts are, are going astray. And please 
keep transforming us. Please fit, fit us out for heaven. Um, we know, of course, that we are approved of by you already, so we don't need to win that. But, Lord, we want to be what you want us to be. And so please help us to take on these fruits. May this community be one of these things. May we be filled with love for each other. And our Father, we ask you this because we know that you've sent us your Holy Spirit to do this work amongst us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.